Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. Would you believe this is our 400th program? Goodness. Thanks so much for listening, for sticking with us. Thanks especially to The Man Podcast's editor, Wilson Butterworth, who has been with the program since around episode 8. He straightens out my meanders. If you'd like to thank us for these 400 free programs, please give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts or wherever you download the show. It's ridiculous that algorithms rule the world, that they matter so much, but they do. And those five-star ratings really help. Thanks. I thought maybe we should do a special episode for our 400th show, like we did for number 200, but it's a holiday weekend, and I decided I liked what we did for our 300th, a normal show that reflected our values, our attempts to faithfully represent the breadth and depth of the art world. For this holiday show, we'll hear a conversation I had with Carrie Moyer in May of 2018 when she was included in Inherent Structures, a group show at the Wexner Center for the Arts in Columbus, Ohio. Now she's in Queer Abstraction at the Des Moines Arts Center, a show which looks at how LGBTQ artists have used abstraction to address sexuality and gender. The show was curated by Jared Ledesma. The catalog is excellent. The show will be in Iowa through September 8th. Carrie Moyer is a New York-based painter whose work has mined the history of abstract painting, particularly composition and the way artists have used different materials and techniques. Her work and titles often point to contemporary life and politics. She frequently writes criticism for outlets such as Art in America. The Tang Museum organized a survey of her work in 2013. She's also had solo shows at the Worcester Art Museum in Massachusetts and at the Katzen Art Center at American University in Washington, D.C. Carrie Moyer, after the break. The Museum of Fine Arts Houston presents Icons of Style, a Century of Fashion Photography, showcasing the industry's rich and varied history through more than 200 photographs by famous practitioners and lesser-known yet influential artists. From elegant 20th century portraits to the trend-setting fashions of Beyonce, David Bowie, Audrey Hepburn, Run DMC, and more, this broad and diverse perspective on fashion traces its trajectory from niche industry to powerful cultural force. On view through September 22nd. Visit mfah.org icons for more. Celebrate wine and inspiring conversation at the Getty Villa on June 2nd and 16th. Learn more about the exhibition Plato in L.A., Contemporary Artists' Visions. Hear UCLA classicist Catherine Morgan discuss Plato's relevance today. And enjoy wine and appetizers with fun-loving philosophers in an enchanting outdoor setting. Find out more about this perfect summer event and get tickets at getty.edu 360. This summer, the Modern Art Museum of Fort Worth presents Disappearing California Circa 1970, featuring works by artists Bastian Otter, Chris Burden, and Jack Goldstein. The exhibition, curated by Philip Kaiser, examines the shared common interest in themes of disappearance and self-effacement, manifesting in works that were daring and often dangerous, on view through August 11th. The Modern is also featuring David Park, A Retrospective, organized by SF MoMA and curator Janet Bishop. This is the first major museum exhibition in more than 30 years to present the artist's powerfully expressive work. David Park is best known as the founder of the Bay Area Figurative School. On view September 22nd. Visit themodern.org for more information. And we're back. Carrie Moyer, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you, Tyler. I'm very excited to be here. Let's start by talking about a painting of yours that's uh, in the Wexner show, because I think a lot of 
the things I find interesting about your work are within it. The painting is called String Theory and Daisy Chains, and it's from 2016. And it's a painting that continues your investigation of American painting from the post-Abex period, a painting that somehow, in, in a way you do that I really love, that brings together so much of late 50s and 60s and 70s painting while still being fresh and new. So first up, from, from kind of the earliest point I can think of to jump off from, do you remember when and why painting from those kind of post-Abex years came to interest you? You know, I went to art school in the 80s, like as an undergrad. And of course, that kind of painting was totally reviled. That's why I ask, yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, you know, it's not that people were saying don't paint. It was more, why is modernism at all interesting, I think. Because we were moving into the post postmodernism and later on identity art. And I think for part of it is I think that kind of art was sort of aspirational for me when I was a child. It's kind of like, that's what art looks like. I come from a working class family. My mother really wanted me to be an artist. She often took me and my sister to look at art. And so I was kind of an autodidact with limited access to real paintings and looked at lots of things in books. And I mean, I think that's part of it. Part of it is I had a discovery of acrylic paint at a certain point in my career when I returned to painting after about a six year hiatus and then started thinking about that as a material, which also goes to 60s and 70s painting. So there are a number of reasons I would say. So among the, broadly speaking, references within paintings such as String Theory and Daisy Chains, and really lots of your work from the last 20 years, are color field painting and hard edge painting, and kind of proto-minimal painting of the Ellsworth Kelly, John McLaughlin type, stain painting, things that, you know, shouldn't exist together and that you've made exist in, in, in one place. I mean, there's no one on, on Earth who really necessarily thinks color field stain painting should exist on the same surface as as Ellsworth Kelly but but you when did you think of that and why did you think of the, that as something to make play together I mean this could go to the really the sort of intellectual culture that I came up in you know it's like that all of these things were sort of were used as a kind of sign system especially in the earlier work I think in the last six or seven years, the work has gotten a lot more integrated, so it doesn't read as a series of signs anymore. But there's something very oppressive about the idea of a homogeneous surface or a kind of integrated picture that would, you know, be typically produced, say, in the 50s. And I've never completely understood that. So... I don't know if it's partially willfulness and the sense of, and maybe it comes from graphic design where it's a matter of putting different things together or a sense of collage, but it was also kind of acknowledging that each of those moments in art history had so much more, there were so many other ways to read them. 
instead of, especially with color field painting, a kind of end game around modernism. We're going to reduce the canvas to this. It's going to keep, it's going to keep referring back to the canvas. It's like, yeah, that is a cul-de-sac that we can't get out of. But what else can we do with this incredible materiality that gets set up that's so atmospheric and suggests a kind of space that does not go with the dialogue around late modernism. Yeah, I mean, one of the parts of that dialogue that was somewhere between dominant and purist was the the pursuit of ultimate, complete, and total flatness. We're going to get into kind of how your paintings both are and aren't flat as we go along here, but did that part of, of kind of Greenbergian discourse the ideal of flatness interest you or did you did it interest you only in the sense that you looked forward to rejecting it <laughs> part of the thing that got me through my early years making work was that i worked as a graphic designer on the early computer graphic systems you know they were standalone systems before mac and one of the devices that we don't even think about anymore is how the Macs or graphic interfaces use things like drop shadows to make this kind of fake space. And I think part of it was I'm interested in this kind of shallow sense of space that initially I was calling poster space because I was thinking of these things as a kind of extension of agitprop. So it's this really shallow space that refers directly to the picture plane. In other words, you could have kind of cheesy 60s illusionistic abstraction in a painting with lots of other things. And I don't even know that I thought it was that strange. I was just like, it made some kind of sense to me. It didn't seem like I was being particularly rebellious. I was like, oh, I'm just going to try this, see what happens. I mean, it was certainly around. The idea and the interest in flatness was attached to thinking about logos or certain kinds of pop art that I was interested in. But it was also sort of making a context for them. I guess that would be a way to put it. That's outside of a kind of commercial space. I had a bunch of questions about how you think your graphic design interest makes it into the paintings. Just to fill in a bit of backstory before I get to a couple of them. Um, we've already mentioned that you trained as a painter at Pratt and made your living for a time as a graphic designer. But after leaving Pratt, you detoured into activism. And along with Sue Schaffner and your senses of humor, you founded the activist group Dyke Action Machine. Your posters are often very funny. They they insisted on lesbian visibility and on a place for lesbians in public space. We'll have a link to Dam's website, and you will laugh uh, on, on manpodcast.com. <laughs> So there are in a number of the posters you made in that period, these these kind of broad expanses of flat color. And there are in lots of your paintings, going back 20 years, broad expanses of flat color. One way of thinking of those spaces is that they come out of maybe like Ellsworth Kelly. Some of the forms are even kind of rounded in ways that recall Kelly's paintings of the mid-1950s. Or that they come from graphic design. And I wonder if you think they come from one or the other. I think I think of them more as maybe like super graphics, you know, that you might see in like an airport or something. I mean, we don't use that term anymore, but it was a term that they used in the late 60s and 70s for these big things that got painted on big 
industrial walls, right? I don't know that I necessarily was thinking of Ellsworth Kelly, actually. I mean, I'm more interested in people like Ad Reinhardt or Stella or, I mean, with Reinhardt especially, like, for me anyway, the sense of periphery. But then I'm also really interested in people like Paul Feely. So the relationship of something very flat and almost like a rubber stamp on a raw field. So I'm really, a lot of this is kind of driven by an interest in the surface texture and what happens to us as we move close and far away from a canvas. That drives many of the kinds of painting moves and surfaces that happen in the pictures. Probably a good time to note that your paintings tend to be very large, five, six feet by six, seven feet. And that, I mean, in hearing you talk about what, you know, hearing you say what you just said, it reminds me that, that some of that must come from kind of that airport scale graphic design. I don't know if mentality is the right word, but, you know, approach scale well also i i really overwork little paintings i have not mastered that size it's like for me the the big size feels really comfortable and because i'm working on them between a flat surface like they often sit on a table and then they'll be moved to the wall so they go back and forth so i'm looking at them from very far away or really minutely like you know studying this my nose at the level of the painting looking at it and so there's a that to me and I hope this is communicated to the viewer is like such an important part of the pleasure of making a painting I mentioned that the dyke action machine work is full of humor those posters are full of sly lines such as at last, Dyke Action Machine has figured out how to convert lesbianism into a viable commodity that can be bought, sold, and traded, and, and so on and so forth. Do you think about or try to get that sense of humor into your paintings? I mean, I think a lot of the jokes are sort of dumb, like, painter jokes. A lot of the forms are, you know, they vacillate between being body parts or often body parts that are doing they're twisted or they're bent or almost cartoonish. And then there are some things that just look like the painting you referred to in the beginning, the string theory. You know, there are things in it that are like daisy that might come from, you know, it might have been a decal or something from like Latin. Or... It also reads as a palette in the upper right-hand corner. And there's a little gray shape coming through the oval cutout in this daisy slash palette like form that kind of doubles over it and creates depth out of these very flat colors it's 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 like my favorite spot in the whole painting <laughs> <laughs> that's great i love it and the two the two forms in the lower left of that painting the the the, the, the lower left quadrant if you will you know, almost read as, as they both read as Ellsworth Kelly-like forms, but they also read as, as breasts kind of presented side view, one of them, and frontal view, the other one, on top of each other. Yeah, I mean, I think that having lived through the period of painting that I lived through, it's like, how do we 
you know, you could be asking questions right now about is there such a thing as queer abstraction or feminist abstraction? And to me, one of the ways I want to sort of insert myself into this conversation and perhaps even make jokes about it because I don't know honestly what I think about it. You know, some days I'm like, this is totally the definitions are based on our experience and what we pour into the painting. And so when I'm using these references to female bodies, it's both a, it's not a dig, but it's a kind of sly nod to our obsession with reading 50s paintings in this super phallic way, but also a kind of self-consciousness about that. Like, do we only read these things through a social lens? Do you know what I'm saying? Oh, I do, because I have a painting queued up. That painting is called Affiche Number 13, Lewis Unfurled. It's from 2002. It is a, a vertical rectangle rather than a horizontal rectangle, as Lewis so often painted, Morris Lewis, of course. And it has those kind of ribbon-like forms coming in from the edges all the way down to the bottom of the painting. And in your painting, you have you, you have those Lewis-like ribbons coming in, but between them, there is a little blobular shape up there that reads as two possible things. One of them is that it reads as a cloud. And of course, the idea that there's an illusionistic or, or cloud in a Lewis painting is, you know, cracks me up. Also, the idea that anything from the natural world makes its way into a Lewis painting cracks me up. And the other way to read it is that is that you're querying Lewis by making the size of the canvas and shape of the canvas you use vertical and that all of a sudden the horizontal ribboning of Lewis becomes vertical ribboning uh, kind of looks like a, a, a V where a woman's legs might come together and that cloud all of a sudden is pubic hair is that an example of both being funny because it's a very funny painting and and queering the thing yes I mean that is I can't remember what the date on that painting is 2002 so that is, well, part of my own sort of story, if you will, is I was a avowed oil painter when I was a student at Pratt. And then I had a moment of like crisis, like what is painting for a couple years after I graduated and spent about five or six years doing agitprop for DAM and for some other groups. But when I came back to painting, I decided I was going to switch to acrylic paint. And I started thinking about how oil paint and its relationship to the gesture. And, you know, so that was in the middle of the 90s. And we were talking a lot about 50s painting being very masculinist and whatnot. But when, in fact things like color field painting with Morris Lewis and then his relationship to Helen Frankenthaler were also these kind of signal events that we always recognize. You know, it's just not, it's not just Franz Klein, you know, these big black marks being these kind of sign of masculine, like quote unquote genius in terms of painting you know, there are also the rivulets of Morris Lewis. We know those instantly. So it's kind of back to this idea about what are the kinds of 
signs for painting and how are they read. And it was meant to be very funny. It's also funny because I basically projected his forms onto the painting and painted them in. The person who stretches has stretched my canvases for a long, long time, David Headley, was involved with Lewis's catalog resume. So he told me a lot about how those paintings were made, you know, how the canvas was pinched and then the acrylic paint or the magna would, you know, flow down these pinched alleys, as it were. But then in my version, those forms get just completely flattened out. They look like a silk screen, actually. You know, that reminds me, I've been meaning to ask how, in many of your paintings, whether it's this one from 2002 or the more recent paintings, there are things on the canvas that look like they were poured, a la, you know, Lewis and Frankenthaler. Are you pouring them or are you making it look like they were poured? I'm pouring them and then they are being massaged, let us say. <laughs> With what? <laughs> oh, all sorts of things. More pores go going in with the brush. And maybe part of all of this, I don't know if it's humor or what, is a sort of a disavowal is not the right word, but this idea that things that the artist is this kind of spontaneous person and whatever happens on the canvas is this sort of like sign of some interiority, you know? So when we look at a lot of color field paintings, it's like a lot of that stuff was much more micromanaged than we would assume. It's not like some sort of Sumi ink Buddhist calligrapher who's 90 years old, you know, it's like Hollywood. Things look natural, but they're so not natural. So those are the kinds of things I'm really, really interested in in the paintings. Yeah, well, speaking of illusion, I wanted to return to flatness a bit because, I, I mean, I think the dominant tension in your work now and for a long time has been this tension, you know, the classic modernist 20th century tension between flatness and pictorial space. And I think that you do it in ways that, that are absolutely additive and, and, and really exciting and often kind of funny. You know, we talked a little bit earlier about how you got there, and you and I have talked offline and you've talked in other interviews about how kind of Terry Winters gave you permission or showed you the way to how to do that or maybe to, well, how and, how and why was Winters important to you in that flatness v. pictorial space? I mean, I think with him, I was... I think I have a couple of strains in my work that I have had, like he was somebody I was really interested in when I was an undergrad. So that would have been the early eighties and that love has sort of continued. The thing for me that I was fascinated with, with his work is a kind of gnarly surface for one thing. And then you know, I grew up in Oregon and the Northwest in California. And the minute I got to New York, I started thinking about sort of representations of the natural world. So that was one of the reasons I'm interested in him. I'm also interested in this micro macro thing that he does where we don't actually know where we're at. Even the 
you know, I remember, I don't know exactly when it was. It might have been in the 90s. He had a show of prints that were x-rays that he printed into. And so there's this funny notion of the body or the natural world being a kind of cosmos where in the boundaries around things doesn't, they're very porous. So that's something I'm interested in for with his work. But they're also strangely atmospheric, especially the earlier ones, because they're very grayscale. Another painting where you play with, maybe toy with, pictorial space and flatness that I wanted to talk about is called Swiss Bramble. It's also a 2016 painting, and and, and, and like a good Winter's System painting, I, I, I get lost in this one too. So first, because I can't resist asking, and I'm pretty impressed that I've not asked you about a title yet, what is what is a Swiss Bramble? Why the title? What Your, your titles are often very, very funny. Um, I think my favorite is fan dance at the at the golden nugget but why why swiss bramble <laughs> swiss bramble was i mean this is my doing my titles is this thing that i do with my partner who's also an artist her name is Sheila Peppy and it's become this super fun part of my practice in which i might finish you know eight or nine paintings and we go sit in my studio and we just sort of brainstorm and say silly things. And she is very brilliant wordsmith. So we're just sitting there, you know, we might be drinking lots of coffee and have the computer in front of us and free associate. And with that one, it was obviously a Swiss cheese because it's this big form that looks maybe like a piece of toast or something around the outside that has holes blue, in blue it. Blue toast. <laughs> blue toast, yes. Excuse me, blue toast. But it also looks like one of those weird sort of child toys where the kid is learning how to hammer something into holes, you know, like these big plastic things. Yeah, it's got a little whack-a-mole type of... Uh... Exactly. And then, I don't know, I was like, this is... There's some kind of crazy vegetation or something going on back there. So I just thought of that word and it sounded funny together. Honestly, that's how many of them go. It's like, I kind of don't want to be too directive. I want people to find their own things in the work. And the the titles are often maybe a little literary or I don't know. They're suggestive in a way. They're definitely memorable, which which never hurts. I mean, you know, Swiss Swiss Bramble is a lot more memorable than Untitled um, or Untitled 23 or whatever, right? One, one of the things this painting does is it plays with depth front to back. It, play, it plays with, with depth and flatness kind of side to side. This blue thing... This blue form seems to be sitting on top of liquid forms because there are shadows, there are diagonals, there are... I mean, it almost feels like everything you can think of to play with flatness versus pictorial space is what you threw at this, at this particular painting. Do you think in those terms when you 
compose a thing or or is that just what happens? Yeah, I'm definitely thinking about that. I'm thinking about them as being can I stick my finger or stick my hand into the painting? Like does it give me that sensation? And then what happens as I move if I'm 10 inches from it or 10 feet from it? I'm totally thinking about that. I think with those, I have a few paintings from 2016 and 15 in which I use this kind of, it's it's hard to describe. In, in some of them, it's almost like a skeletal form that sits in front of a big pore or, you know, a lot other incidents that happen on the canvas. And I was thinking about this idea of looking into and, you know, maybe some of the traditional ideas of how one might have thought of a painting 200 years ago as a window, as a space to look through, but actually because that is such a kind of rejected trope of the 20th century to also play with that and pun on it. So you actually can look into things, but you don't get to look very far. And then this whole mess, the seething green stuff with this blue holy piece of toast sitting on top of it is in this very shallow frontal space. Another place you do that in is in Solid, Solid de Dos Hermanas from 2015, where you kind of create two windows and then, you know, Rene Magritte, style or or factum style rauschenberg factum style you you give us a view into a very two similar shapes that are are different but that but but that are intended to recall each other and in a number of paintings from from the 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 2010s you do this thing where you play the pores you know which have been in your work for 20 years against very hard edged shapes it's it's a very distinct kind of Moyer move. Why do you like playing the hard edges against the pores? Is that is that pictorial or is is that part of querying abstraction? Oh, I think it's both. I guess I well, one thing to say to that comment is that, and this is going to sound so cheesy, but. It's like this material, this paint, this acrylic paint is so interesting. I feel like I'm constantly finding out new things about it. So the pour has been in the work for a really long time, but it's like every time I do it, I'm, you know, maybe in each body of work, I'm sort of investigating a different way to use it. So in relation to the hard edge forms, I don't know. Maybe it's just, maybe it's become a cliche. I'm not sure. <laughs> it's something I'm interested in that tension is, is why I do it. It's like the hard and the soft. Yeah. I mean, that's what, I mean, are you using the same paint to make the hard edges as you are to make the pores? Yeah. Yeah. So basically I'm using, it's it got to do with how much water is in each bucket, essentially. So you're showing off that you can be an alchemist. 
Exactly. All without appearing to use brushes, because I, if they're, if, you know, it's pretty hard to find brush marks in your, in your work. Yeah, I think that's something that was a very steadfast rule, not not conscious rule, but it was a way the work evolved, and you know that could be changing in the near future. You know, I think it's that 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 I grew up with teachers who were like, you know, you have to develop your, your mark, you know, what's your mark going to be? It's like paint can only do so many things, you know, it's, which sort of disavows what I just said about acrylic paint. But what I mean by saying that is that this idea that one would have a signature mark is a ridiculous bar to put on painting. It's like there were like amazing painters whose paintings look very similar, actually. You know, when we go into the like second and third and fourth generation abstract expressionists. So it's 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 got to be more complicated than that in terms of invention and creating your own your own mode through referencing lots of other people. In recent years, you have been basking in blues some some of the blues like the one we were talking about in swiss bramble kind of recur in a number of paintings often there are are lighter blues that that come into the pores and kind of before this and i hate i'm going to regret using this phrase as soon as i use it but but before this certain blue period of yours that you know you went through a black period where it was blacks that held a painting together First, why why that color blue? Why that dominant blue? What about that blue is interesting? And second, why is it you find useful to kind of build a thing around a color for a number of years? Wow. I've never thought of my work that way, <laughs> honestly. I mean, I know about the black for sure. I'm not, I'm, I'm not being facetious. I'm being genuine. And the blue is very recurrent. Okay, now for my second most cheesy comment of the interview. I had an experience where I went with my sister on a sisterly road trip, and we went to New Mexico, and we went to all these ruins and looked at the petroglyphs, and we also went to Ghost Ranch, which is was George O'Keefe's ranch, and... This is where the like sort of American, maybe a relationship to American abstraction or abstraction that comes out of the American landscape kicks in a little bit. There's just this weird, this very delicious color of light and sky that I'm just really interested in. Are you consciously building individual paintings around a single color? No, I'm making color decisions. I mean, when I'm making a painting, especially in the flat areas, sometimes those flat areas will have been painted, you know, maybe 20 times because I'm very, very minutely adjusting the value and the hue and seeing what they do, what it does to the surrounding color. So, so in some paintings, you can see the pentimenti buildup, and that's usually from that. 
so I, I, I don't know if I can describe what I'm ultimately looking for and give it a name, but it's like I'm looking for certain vibratory things to happen between the flat color and the modulated color, which is poured. Oh, I think that happens. I, you know, I think that happens even in reproduction. I mean, I think it's pretty hard to miss. Um, and actually, you've kind of been doing that since, you know, almost the beginning. I mean, we've been talking about a lot of recent paintings because recency bias. But, you know, take a painting like 2000's Brain Box, which features a kind of poured red seated figure along with some Sam Francis-like forms with a kind of almost blue male stamped-like figure mostly but not entirely superimposed over it. So I, I guess that's both to point out that you've been interested in what you were just talking about for a long time, but also to note how just enormously different the content of that early painting is. So who who or what is the seated form and who or what is the stamp-like figure? So I went to Bard for my graduate studies in 1998 and I had been painting on my own for quite a while and doing a lot of activism and agitprop and then I decided I wanted to go to grad school and one of the things that happened to me in grad school was that I realized that I could instead of treating painting as this sort of private solely internal activity that I was doing alone in the studio, which I wanted to return to because I'd been doing a lot of collaborative work for around five years. I could also bring in some of the ideas that I had used in Agiprop. So those early paintings in the 2000s, they're really a kind of investigation of me looking at, again, sort of sign systems around countercultural imagery, like May 68, Marx, Lenin, and Chairman Mao is in a couple of the paintings, uh, Buckminster Fuller. So I th what I was doing was moving away from graphic design that was dealing specifically with lesbian visibility and sort of moving into my own history, because I grew up with hippie parents. And sort of looking at that from the outside, but showing it using maybe 60s painting tropes, right? A mixture of hard-edged abstraction and colored field painting. So there's a great, let me, let me jump in really quickly with a great example of that. Um, it's a painting called Chroma Festo, Sister Resistor 1.2 from 2003. It's a mashup of breasts, a, a the closed fist power symbol, the woman symbol with the circle and the plus sign, with all of that kind of 60s style painting and graphic design references that you were talking about. We'll have an image of that on manpodcast.com. So the blue shape is the zigzag man from the rolling papers. Ah. You can, you can kind of make out a mustache, but not so directly that it's obvious. And then the shape in the background was, I was really heavily involved at that point in looking at the sort of history of activist design from like Chinese communist posters from the Cultural Revolution to 
Russian constructivism to May 68 to the feminist, you know, Chicago Women's Graphic Collective. I don't think collective is the right word, but so really doing a sort of broad investigation of silkscreened left leftist graphics. So that image is a picture of a woman hammering from a Chinese poster. So really a lot of the work before, say, 2004 was often sourced from things in the world. Well, speaking of the zigzag papers, you know, there's a painting from that year that also features a marijuana leaf, Free Patty Yantra. So you were probably pretty relaxed in those years. <laughs> no, I'm not a... I'm not a pot smoker. I'm just interested in this iconography and the, the, you know, the sort of, I don't know, how do I say it? Because it's so much a part of our culture now, the kind of diluted meaning that gets attached to these things as they travel through time. Actually, when I was make, making those paintings, it was around the time I lived in the East Village in New York then. And you would walk down 8th Street, and it used to be the street where everyone bought their bong and everything else. And, you know, now it's pretty vacant, actually. But, and that was just me thinking about, you know, why would a 12-year-old want to wear a Che Guevara t-shirt? Like, what does that mean? Because it actually did mean something once. So that was part of that investigation. And then... And as I moved through it, I, I had started out as an abstract painter, and I just really wanted to get away from having a kind of textual component to the work. I wanted it to be more inventive and from my imagination, instead of requiring the viewer to sort of stack up these recognizable or not images in a in a kind of you know, late Picabia polka sort of way. Ah, well, I'm glad you mentioned painters we haven't brought up yet because I was worried I was giving the impression that you were only living in, in Morris Lewis and Ellsworth Kelly because it gives me the opportunity to bring up a couple of other paintings and to ask you about a couple of other specific artists. Let's start with Sap Green, a 2007 painting. That reminds me in ways I can barely describe of Barbara Hepworth and Max Ernst. Uh, Hepworth, the, the Hepworth is easy to find in the painting. It's, it's, it's the holes. The Ernst, I can't quite explain, except for maybe that color green is in a lot of Ernst. Why, why Hepworth? Why Ernst? Well, one of the things I would say in response to that is, I don't remember when the Max Ernst show was at the Met, but it had an enormous impact on me. And he was somebody I had been interested in for a long time. But when I saw his work and the level of invention that he had in, in just literally making the paintings, I mean, I think the late work, the sort of content, if you will, is not so interesting, but the way that they're made and the great variety of things that he came up with to do with paint and different kinds of surfaces. And so he's been a really important person in terms of how I think about 
painting itself and that a painting can actually hold a lot of different kinds of painting in the same painting. And that you can use paint as a sculptural material on on panel or on canvas or whatever you're painting on. Yes. And in terms of the forms, I sort of part of the transition from, you know, looking at agitprop and the sort of history of graphics to wanting to return to a kind of abstraction, which I didn't really know what it would be yet. I was kind of feeling my way towards it. And I was spending a lot of time at the Rockefeller wing at the Met and looking at art from, you know, Aboriginal art, art, you know, totems. I was interested in making a kind of abstraction that would be have some kind of figurative references. So I was looking at a lot of instruments. I think part of it was thinking about like the Venus of Willendorf and forms like that. Thinking about what would happen, you know, when the feminist art movement came around around and it, you know, today we're talking about people like Joan Semmel and Judith Bernstein, but at the time there was not, the painting was probably the least interesting part of what was going on it's like the videos and the performance and all this stuff was had just blossomed so it's kind of like what would feminist painting look like in this kind of but when i look like look at a painting like 2006's fur below and and hear what you're saying about that venus and and that part of the Met and Ernst and Hepworth, I can find all of that. And, and, and also agitprop in a painting like Furbelow. Yeah, so those little black paintings were made, I, I made about 20 of those. And I thought of them as being very influenced by ceramics and sort of things that lived in vitrines, basically. I did a lot of drawings and, you know, looked and, yeah thought a lot about small sculpture or things that are functional maybe that's that's a really interesting thing about about the paintings that you did in the mid-aughts like sap green the hepworth kind of related painting is that there is a lot of sculpture in these i mean i don't think in your new paintings there's as much sculpture except for maybe in that swiss bramble we talked about there's there's a little hepworth there too of course but there's a heck of a lot of sculpture in these mid-aughts paintings like every single one (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, because I was thinking about them being perhaps a kind of form that lived. And I was also really interested in symmetry and like how symmetry does not allow for a certain kind of narration. Like we think of a cruciform or, you know, any kind of like a mandala or something. And we are basically locked in the frame with that form. We're not meant to escape. We're meant to sit there with it. And so I was thinking a lot about how that, how symmetry operated. And so back to this idea of a form sitting in a rectangle that, you know, you're kind of just supposed to look at. So a great example of that, the last painting I'll mention, is from 2011. It's called Battle of the Scholar Rocks. And it's lots of Ernst, lots of sculpture, lots of object. There's a winking reference to symmetry, everything you just described, including treating paint like a sculptural material, even using Ernst's colors is all right there. Yeah, that one, I was like, oh, God. I I mean, a lot of times what happens when I'm in the studio is 
and this, you know, I don't know if I should qualify it or not, but, you know, it's like things happen. Things happen when the painting is on the table and it reminds me of something. And so instead of suppressing it, I go with it, right? So in that painting, there was part of it that looked kind of like malachite. And it's like, oh, this is interesting. How do I, you know, so it's again, playing with this idea of taste in painting, which goes to the integrated surface, you know, in the kind of Greenbergian sense. It's like, well, you wouldn't use something that looked like faux faux painting in a in a like a highbrow painting, like a serious painting. So I was, you know, I'm again I'm still thinking about stuff like that. And that also goes to some of the reasons that I started using glitter too. Was it I think it was a kind of self consciousness that I had about what kinds of painting I was interested in. So if I'm interested in mid-century painting and we're living in this moment when painting is dead, how do I queer that? You know, how do I bring it, bring it to the presence? And then later on, it became this sort of interesting kind of light source that happened in the work. Yeah, that's, that's all there in that painting. It's very great. It has some Ernst. It has some Picasso. It has some... It has a lot of things. It's really, it's really pretty super. Carrie Moyer, thanks so much for speaking with me. Thank you, Tyler. This has been so fun. Thank you. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.